In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We start a brand new sermon series. I'm pretty excited about this. We have done topical sermons for a long time, it feels like, so I'm kind of excited to just jump into a book. And we're going to have themes that come up again and again in this book of Philippians because I'm hoping when you run across the book of Philippians, there's things that trigger in your mind. You think, oh, it's the book of Philippians. I got to know this, this, and this. So that's kind of that's the, kind of the goal with this. And we, the title of our series is Joy Equals Us. I was going to spell it a couple different ways, but then joy equals us. The whole book of Philippians, which we'll get into in a second, has to do with joy. Uh, but first, we've got to talk about some names. Uh, the book of uh, the city of Philippians, er, city of Philippi, is where this is written. So they, Apostle Paul is in prison, and he is writing a letter. So that's one of the epistles. He's writing a letter to a group of Christians that is in Philippi. Now, Philippi had names that have changed over time. This changes. Um, some of our cities changed over time, not too many of them. Uh, New Memphis, for example, is where the, uh, where the Justice Center is. That got moved. They literally picked up the Capitol building and they moved it over to Castle Rock. So that gets moved, it gets merged, we get brand new names. So right here we have, uh, this would be Greek. It would be Cree, I, I didn't look up the exact Greek word, but I would say it would be probably pronounced Krenides, and that just means fountain. So originally it's known as the place of the fountain. This is not a big place, by the way, a couple thousand people. And then it changes names. When Philip II comes in, he utterly defeats it. And so very humbly, he names it Philippi, after himself. So that's what he did. And I should do that when my house, I should, when I move into a new house, I should rename it after myself. I have conquered that home. And then it has a couple name changes. This is all B.C., before Christ. And then um, if you know the story, you know, where you have, um, where uh, Julius Caesar is betrayed, and then they say, et tu, Brute. So Brutus gets together with Octavius, and they, they fight, and then they eventually work together to beat at the Battle of Philippi, and then they rename it something very easy, Colonia Victris Philippensium. It gets worse. Then it gets changed to Colonia Iulia Philippensis. Then it gets changed to Colonia Augustus Iulia Philippensis. Could you imagine, like, this guy being a part of a sports team? They're like, what sports team are you with? I'm with Colonia Augustus Iulia Philippensis. I can't imagine this happening at all. I think the guy would be like, I'm from the CIP, baby. That's what I'd be saying. Like, this is... So, but eventually it gets changed. This obviously gets old, and they say, okay, let's just go right back to Philippi. So this goes through all these different name changes, but eventually by the time we get to the New Testament and they're talking with the Apostle Paul, it's back to Philippi, named after Philip II. So that's what they're writing to. And what do we want to know about this place? Let's talk just some of the looks. This isn't a great picture. You can look it up on Wikipedia, mostly because they took this picture right from Wikipedia. And here are some of the ruins that are there. And in every... Roman town. When you go to any of these, this is a Roman colony. They always have an amphitheater, so you can go to some that are preserved really well and some that are not. So some of the best preserved ones would be like um, if you go to, um, how did I just lose it? The, where the volcano was, um, Pam, Pompeii, there we go. I was going to say Pam, Pam, Pamplona, and that's not as that's made up, I think. Um, so Pompeii is, you can see some of the best amphitheaters. They would go there. The acoustics make it so some person in the middle could talk, and then even when they uh, couldn't hear them, they would wear masks. This is where some of this comes from, a facade. They would wear a mask, and it would have like a cone in it so that they'd have these kind of over big heads, like kind of like uh, mascots. So you'd have these mascots, they'd have these extra big heads, and they would do theater, Greek theater, with these things. So this is some of the interior pictures. You can still go there. There's not really a functioning city there. Now it would mostly be for tourism so people could see Philippi. But where is that? Um, very clearly, on my computer this looked a lot better. A very washed out picture. Somehow I used a mimeograph to put this on here. 
but the dot up there is where it's at. These are the fingers of Greece. Some of you have been to Greece, um, like Athens and stuff would be over here. This is way up in the upper part, and this is the first time the Apostle Paul preaches in what we had known as Europe. So up until this time, this is not really Europe. He's um, in the other areas. He could be, ooh, this one looks better. Good. So if you know the Mediterranean Sea, like Club Med, if you'd go all the way over to here, you'd start to get to uh, Jerusalem and some of the areas over here. So we have Greece and then Italy. It would be kind of way up in here. If you're really cool and you can hang out here, most of you when you go to Europe probably don't go that far because it's a whole separate trip. It's a lot farther than just going to Italy. When we talk about Rome, Rome's kind of up in the middle. And when we talk about Pompeii, it's kind of up towards the middle as well. This is, so what's the, series, what's the story with Philippi? Like, why is he writing a letter to the, the Philippians? A couple things that we're going to talk about in this book, four things that I think are kind of main things to, that identify this book a little bit different than some of our other books. Two, it is written to uh, retired soldiers. So we don't know exactly how this all went down. But when they made it, they, went, they would expand the kingdom. Okay, so you're a Roman, you're a Roman government. You go and you win the Battle of Philippi. Like, how do you keep the battle how do you keep the area of Philippi? If any of you guys have played Risk and things like this, you know, like, that's, you got to keep people there, right? To, otherwise, you lose it. That's exactly what happened. So they gave land to some of these soldiers, the Praetorium and things like that. They would give land to the soldiers and say, hey, if you will stay there and be like a citizen's militia, you can have land. So that's kind of the deal. So this is almost all retired soldiers that are hanging out in Philippi. That's what they say. Not a huge town. They got land. They got to stay there. With that, um, there's, you might not believe this, but there's not a lot of Jewish people in the Roman army. So when he goes to write this letter to this people who are not Jewish, uh, let me ask it this way. If you were going to convince someone, uh, a lot of the books in the Bible are convincing Jewish people that Jesus is the Messiah that was promised. And if you're going to convince a Jewish person that Jesus is the Messiah, what, where would you start? You'd start with Old Testament because they know the Old Testament. That's their Bible. So when we say like we have the Bible, Old and New Testament, Jewish people totally familiar with the Old Testament. So for example, in uh, Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, he goes and he starts preaching and in like a 10-minute sermon, he quotes the Old Testament to these Jewish people like three different times. So then when you get to the book of Philippi, there are absolutely no Old Testament quotes. So he's not talking to Jewish people. He says, I'm not going to bother. In fact, the synagogue is not even mentioned in the book of Philippi. Usually when Paul shows up to a new town, we read the book of Acts, it says, then he went to the synagogue, right? And he preaches there until he gets kicked out. And then he goes and preaches somewhere else. But in the book of Philippi, they don't even mention the synagogue. So he's not even going there. There probably was a synagogue. It just probably wasn't very big. So the synagogue is like uh, the Jewish church. They would worship there on Saturdays. So more about... This should click here. Oh, nice. Nice work, Jared. Um, I'll just talk about the next point like this. Um, so more about Christian living. I think that's a good thing because if the, he's tr talking to a group of people that he's not trying to convince that Jesus is the Messiah, they already know that Jesus is the Messiah. So their biggest thing for them is what does it look like coming from this kind of pagan culture of the Roman world and the gods and Saturn and all this other Saturnalia and all these other festivals and things like that. What does this look like to live as a Christian? And so, as far as I know, you're not Jewish. If you are, just send me a text and I'll never say that sentence again to our group of people. But as far as I know, we don't have Jewish people here. And so most of you also are convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. 
So I think it's a, it's a helpful book for us because we're not going to go through and try and again and again that, hey, Jesus really is the Savior, and you go like, I already know that. Instead, we're talking about what does it look like to walk in this world and be a Christian. And I think that's why it's going to be one of the helpful books for us. And with that, and you can guess the last point, joy in all circumstances. This is a huge thing. And so we're going to talk about joy for a little bit right now before we get into the book. Um, joy is a little bit different than happiness. If I would give definitions, um, there's a lot of people that are happy that aren't full of joy. So this is maybe my own definition. And joy is being content in all circumstances, which is way different than being happy. You can have a dog that is not joyful, but you can have a dog that's happy. When is your dog happy? You play catch, the tail wags, right? It's really obvious. They've got indicators. Uh, the tail wags, uh, you scratch their belly, their tail wags. Uh, you come home, they jump on you, their tail wags. You give them food, their tail wags. They take a nap, their tail doesn't wag, but it's very content somehow in this little ball of, uh, of something. So an animal can be happy, right? An animal can be happy. And sometimes you make your goal when you have kids, for example, and this is where I think it comes through. You make it your goal that my kids are happy. Is it difficult to make your kids happy when they're little? Well, sometimes, I mean, if they're colicky, it could be challenging. But for the most part, they, you need three things, right? When they're little, you, as long as they're fed and they're clean and they're swaddled, they're a happy kid. The circumstances are fine. It, as long as there's, and there's not loud noises or anything like that. So you go to some homes and you can't ring the doorbell, right? Now, now people are going to get mad at me. They're going to be like, he's such a jerk. This guy I know observed these things. You can go to some houses, you can't ring the doorbell, they can't do anything if it's not, you know, it's nap time. You go, it, it, every single thing is, <laughs> John's smiling because you can't ring his doorbell, all right? <laughs> That's awesome. Our church president, you can't ring his doorbell, don't do that. So there's a lot of things that you can do um, to make sure your kid is happy as long as all, all you're doing is kind of insulating things to make sure the circumstances are always right. But there gets to be a point where the circumstances aren't always right, and you can't do enough that they're going to be happy all the time. So if your whole goal is to make your kids happy, it works for a while, but eventually they're going to face disappointment. You ever met someone who's like in high school or they're an adult and things don't go their way and they throw a fit? And you're like, what is wrong with this person? Because part of maturity is recognizing that things aren't always going to go your way. And I'll give you an example. My son's watching in the nursery, and this like brought a tear to my eye. Because I like to give my kids healthy doses of deal with it. I say it in a nicer way. I say healthy doses of deal with it. So we go to skiing, and we're really excited about it. And um, we're going, and the kids know that when we go to eat, you guys might already know this, when we go to eat, how many hot things do I buy from the, the restaurant? One. They get a basket of fries they share. That, so they don't want any more kids in our family because they're going to get less fries. They're like, Dad, don't have more kids because we only get like six fries as it is. But just, so we pack PBJs and all this stuff, but then I come, like, magically, the hot fries come, and they're all super excited. They all thank me for these fries, because they cost $22.50, as I lay them down, and they're really excited to have these fries, and they eat them, and that's fine. They never ask for anything more, because they're not going to get it, and they know that. But here's where, here's where I was touched. So my son, we drive, and we stop. He's like, I'm thirsty. Can I get something? Can I get a Gatorade? No, I don't want him to die of dehydration. So I'm like, all right, go check the prices. And tell me what they are. So I'm filling up with gas. He comes back. He goes, okay, Dad, Gatorades are two bucks. I'm like, big one or small one? He's like, small one. I'm like, mm. He's like, I could probably hold off. I got some water. And like, you can guess that I, I almost cried. And I said, thanks, son. And he went to the back. We did not buy him a Gatorade. What is that teaching him? If the circumstances are right, 
we're going to move forward with it, but I'm not going to drop everything and do everything conceivable just to make you happy. And why does that matter? Because life as a kid is, may seem difficult, but it's way harder as a teenager. What happens when you don't make the basketball team? What happens when your boyfriend or girlfriend dumps you? What happens when you don't get an A? What happens when you just suddenly figure out, wait a second, God did not endow me with what the world considers natural beauty? What happens if you struggle with your weight? Like, you have to teach your kids, I think, joy is above all that. Joy is not just being happy when you have good grades and you're on the team and people think you're pretty. That, that's not joy. That's just being happy, and anyone should be happy then. When your job is great, you should be happy, but you are teaching your kids to be joyous and content regardless of the circumstances. And what can teach a kid? What can teach a kid that outside of their circumstances that they're valuable and outside of their circumstances that, they, that things are good and outside of um, all these other things, they're still special? Christianity. And I think that's why it matters when we look in the book of Philippians because we're talking about joy. Joy is being content no matter where your job is no matter where your relationships are, no matter what you look like or your weight or your money, God is saying you're still valuable to me. That's real joy. So that's what we're going to be looking at. Now, let me give you a couple examples from the Apostle Paul's life. So it's not like some guy where everything is great and he's some trust fund guy and saying like, hey, you guys should be happier. And you're like, yeah, I can see it. Um, He was somewhat wrongfully imprisoned. He has the threat of death. His ministry he questions because he's in prison. His friend who was with him abandoned him. I mean, you can kind of see some of these things that would make it pretty difficult even as an adult. And I think you're, you think teen life is bad. It gets harder as you get to be an adult because now you worry about your kids. Uh, you worry about your job. You've got money things, relationship things, all these things where things aren't always going your way. What better book than to step back in the book of Philippians and say, let's find joy regardless of our circumstances. So jumping from there, this is where the book starts. We're going to make it through a couple sections, uh, probably two main things, and then he's got kind of a congregational update that you heard in the reading, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. So Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Uh, Timothy is with him. He's in prison, not like the, later on when he dies, he's in the Mamertine jungle. Uh, Mamertine jungle. Not the Mamertine jungle, the Mamertine prison, which is different. You can actually go to um, Rome and you can see it. And I've told you this already. You pay like six bucks and you can go into the spot where the Apostle Paul was. I thought it was such bull that when I was there, I didn't pay the money. I get back to the Sam. I'm like, yeah. And then they're like, yeah, here's where Paul was. And they're like, oh yeah, that's where he was. I'm like, what? For six bucks, I could have been in the same spot? <laughs> so I chose poorly. When you go to Rome, to the Roman Forum, and it says Mamertine jungle, I, <laughs> don't go there. That's a kid's play area. Go to the Mamertine prison. Uh, you want to go there. You can actually see the spot where they say traditionally where the Apostle Paul and Peter were. So I think that'd be kind of cool. So that is not where he's at now. He's in a house arrest for two years as he's kind of waiting for his trial to go. But he can't leave. I mean, people can come visit him, but he can't leave. Um, so to all of God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, or the CAIP, uh, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God every time I remember all of you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy, there you see it, because of your partnership in the gospel. From the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So let's just talk about this for a little bit. The Apostle Paul, his great joy, and, I, and I, this resonates with me as a pastor. 
when I say prayers for my congregation, when I say prayers for you, the thing that brings me the greatest joy is our partnership. And it's the idea that um, together we can do more than just one person. Together with our money and together with our time and together with our efforts, we can do way more than we could ever do as a person, and that brings me joy. Um, it brings me joy to know that we, working together, um, I might not have a friend who comes to church this whole year, but you might, and together our church grows. Next year, you might not have a friend who comes to church, but I might. And so together we're saying, hey, this is valuable. And when we talk about raising your kids even, I can only be a part of that. But it brings me great joy to see you taking part in your kids. It brings me great joy to know that there's someone who is watching our kids right now in our teens and teaching them a lesson. It brings me joy to know that there's someone who's going to raise up our kids. This all brings great joy, just as it did to the Apostle Paul. Because I think partnership is something that's kind of special. Here's how Jesus, uh, not Jesus, here's how Solomon talks about it. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity anyone who falls that has no one to help them up. How many of you like doing projects by yourself? I only like to do projects by myself when I'm learning how to do them. So when I'm learning how to do something, I don't want anyone else around so they can't roll their eyes at me. When I fix my car and I'm trying to learn how to, I don't want anyone else around because I'm learning and I can be embarrassed by myself. So I got on a lift yesterday with Steve Conan. So Steve is on the lift, we're cutting insulation off the ceiling. And uh, Steve works in a bucket truck for CenturyLink. So how do you think I felt like a caveman tried to operate? By myself, I feel like I'm a master. Like, like Steve gets on there, and I just see him looking at me, and he was really kind. I'm like, uh, do you want to drive? He's like, yeah, I could do that. I could do that. <laughs> He gets there. We're going up, and he does like everything just like what he knows what he's doing. You like to do, but just think about that. So then we work together. And you, you ever paint your house by yourself, like the interior? And you paint like for hours, and then you're like, wow, I got nothing done. Did you ever say that? Does that ever happen to you? Do you ever work with it like someone else is doing the walls and you're doing the trim while you're sitting and your knees hurt and you're like dragging along the bottom? And then you look up and the walls are a different color. Like the great joy of someone else working with you and how exciting that is when you work on a team. When you think about your best memories of school, I'm guessing your best memories are when you did stuff with other people. You're not like, hey, remember that one time I was in study hall by myself? No, you're talking about events and, and stories. Um, the kids asked me, because uh, Amy had to work, so we're in the condo, and Owen goes, tell me funny stories from college. So every funny story I had, both of them, uh, <laughs> were with people. Every funny story I had was with people. And so I work with, and let me give you one more example on it, um, the art of the high five. So there's a guy that I work with. His name is uh, Pastor Matt Fry. So he is really a pretty straight-laced guy. So I go to say hi to him. He lives in Montrose. And I go, hey, how you doing, man? Just Tom Brady'd me. Like, no high five. I'm like, who doesn't high five? He's like, I don't high five. But so then he goes like this, shake. I'm like, well, I'm not going to shake. <laughs> Take that, right? I like, and so we have this standoff, you know, I'm like this, and he's like this, and he's like, all right, fist bump. So we fist bump, you know, in the middle, but is there any risk involved in a fist bump? When's the last time you screwed up a fist bump? I mean, have you ever seen guys miss a fist bump? That doesn't happen. I mean, you can hit the one knuckle, and it still looks all right. So there's no risk involved when you just, like, do one of these. The high five is a different story. The high five, there's risk involved. You ever see a missed high five? 
someone takes their eye off the prize and they're like, oh, we got to redo that. They got to redo that because you feel so bad about it, right? You high five with Eric Schmidt, his hand's like 12 feet in the air. You're like, I don't even know if I can see it up there, right? You're trying to, you're trying to high five it, but you get a well-executed high five what feels better in the world. There's risk involved, right? You can come back from this. Like if I go like this and you deny me, I can pretend I'm like cracking my knuckles. I can just stretch things. I can pretend I'm grabbing something. Is there coming back from this? You come into church and I go like this. Is there, what am I supposed to do now? Uh, someone's asked me a question in the back. I'm just answering it, right? You can't come back from that. There's risk involved. And when you find great joy in your partnership, you got to put yourself out there. And I think the greatest relationships, the greatest partnerships you've ever had were when you're willing to risk something. You're ris- willing to risk embarrassment. You're willing to risk spending money that you, you don't think you should spend. You're willing to risk like doing things and giving up time. And you're willing to do all these things. And so when you think about your marriage, when you think about your friends, when you think about your job, it's when you risk something to say, let's, let's really push and do something together. Like we're doing on this building, I think this is exciting. We're taking a risk together and saying, you know, by ourselves, we just lose one of you, two of you, three of you. This makes hard, but when all of us work together, we can do something awesome. What is better than doing that? What is better than proclaiming the gospel together? And so this is what the Apostle Paul says. It's right for me to feel this way about our partnership because he's talking about proclaiming the gospel. It's not just a high five. Since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus, and this is my prayer. So we're going to talk about his prayer. He says, I I totally love you guys, and this is my prayer for you that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. So let's look at a couple of those things, that your love may abound. So a lot of times we read about, um, the Beatles came up with this, and the Beatles, I think, were Buddhist, if anything, and they said, love is all you need. Love is all you need. All you need is love. Love, 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 love. And to some degree, that makes sense. There's a lot of circumstances where you say we love. And I think you could even argue that Jesus would argue the same thing. He says, a new command I give you, right? Jesus says, I want you to love. So he summarizes all the commands. We've got 10 commands. And then we summarize it to one. He says, love your neighbor as yourself and love God above all things. We love God above all things, your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor. And he goes, you know what? I'm going to narrow that one more time. This is like this, the platinum diamond command. He says, I'm just going to break it down to this. You just love and you're good to go. But it's not just about loving. And you'll run into a lot of people when they say, this is what you, you just got to love more. But it's not about like loving your pets more. It's not about just like loving people without direction. It's not about like my favorite vegetable I love is, uh, you know, like corn syrup or something like that. It's not talking about just expressing love in a more detailed way. Jesus says, this is what I want you to do. Love as I have loved you. That's how you're supposed to love. So to these Philippian Christians who are brand new, these soldiers, he's saying, I want your love to abound. I'm going to look at a different passage Um, This is from the New Living Translation. I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. So for these Philippian Christians, what was their biggest issue? There's two things, right? They weren't always expressing their love as a Christian, 
And the second thing is they didn't always know what they should do. So if we look at it like this, some of us are going to struggle with this aspect of love. We need to know, uh, we need action. We need to, to fulfill the thing that we already know we're supposed to be doing. Some of us are going to fit in that category of knowledge, which is, I'm not sure what God expects for me in this situation. So which, which category do you fit in? You have to ask yourself that. Because God wants us to be a true believer. And this is the Apostles Paul prayer. This is his prayer for the people. I want you to grow in both these areas. You can't have one without the other. You can't know everything. You ever met someone? We've talked about this before. You ever met someone who knows everything about what the Bible says, but they're jerks? Which category do they need some help with? You ever met someone who they just talk about love and you got to just love more and you're saying, hey, this guy's going down the wrong path. They're like, why don't you just love him more, love her more? That's not going to cut it because they're missing out on some knowledge. And what the Bible is calling us to do is to love that and have knowledge and that these grow. And when you have these things, that's when you're a true Christian. But where does this start? And this is the final thing I want to end. It doesn't start with your wife. It doesn't start with your friend. It doesn't start with your boss, that they got to know all this. It starts with you. And what does the gospel mean to you? What does the gospel mean to you? What does it mean that when the Bible says, this is knowledge, that our own sinfulness separates us from God, what does that mean to you? What does it mean to you to know that God brings through Christ a perfect love that is not, I mean, it's for the world, but it means for you. What does that mean to you when you hear these things? What does it mean to you when God says some of the things that you do utterly offend him? What does that mean to you? It starts with you and your actions and the things that you do. How am I living out the things that I know? As people who come to church, my guess is 95% of you probably don't need to know more about God's commands. I don't think you're like, yeah, I just, I just didn't know I wasn't supposed to do that. I guess for 95% of us, it's an execution thing. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, hey, we don't probably need more and more and more and more knowledge, these double secret things. All we need to know is how can we express the love and the expectation that God has for us because that's when we get to the middle and that's when we show God's love in the world. One final thing that Apostle Paul has. Here's the congregational update. That's the only way I can describe it. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. He got put in prison. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, because people are visiting him and the guard is hearing about it, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love. He's just giving him an update knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel, the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in change. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice, regardless of his circumstances. So what's our takeaways from today? Um, I think we'd look and think about the awesome thing that we have as a group of Christians working together to proclaim something that's way better than a high five. Instead, we get to proclaim the gospel that changes life. And where does it start? It starts with our own knowledge about this gospel and our own action with that gospel as forgiven children of Christ. Amen.